Christchurch, New Malden, 29th of September 2019, 6.30 service. Stephen Kurt speaking on Understanding the Covenant Through the Prophets. Well, it can be pretty shattering when we come to recognise that something that was meant to be the solution is instead part of the problem. Now, when it comes to Brexit and all the terrible and bitter divisions that are around about it, it's actually the feeling that unites both sides. It's what's created so much of the acrimony. So many people on the Leave side now see most of our elected politicians, our civil service, even Parliament itself, our judiciary perhaps, all things meant to be solutions as instead part of the problem. And many of those on the Remain side see certainly our present government under Boris Johnson, even the decision to hold that referendum back in 2016 in much the same way. Supposed solutions, things intended to be solutions that have instead become part of the problem. And given that perspective, as I say really from both sides, it's not surprising that on both sides of that Brexit divide, there's now considerable perplexity about how all of this mess is possibly going to be resolved. Now, I've used precisely that same illustration recently at the 11 o'clock service when we looked at the covenant theme, as we're doing within Paul's letter to the Romans. And the reason why I'm using it again now is because it really couldn't apply more strongly to the theme of the covenant within the Bible. Over the last few weeks, uh, here at the 6.30 service, we've followed the story within the Bible of God establishing his covenant, initially in creation itself, but swiftly in response to a messed up world. And at the centre of the covenant are promises that God makes to Noah and to Abraham, to Israel and then David. But also alongside those promises, we have the call, the consistent call, to faith and obedience back to God. Faith and obedience uh, back to the God who makes these promises so that the blessings of the covenant can be uh, realised, can be received. And the intention was for God's covenant people to be part of his solution to a sinful and messed up world. And Israel in particular were called to be a kingdom of priests. Israel was called to display to the surrounding world what it looked like to live under the rule of God. And that's what those laws that God gave to Moses were really all about. Some of those laws are easy to understand, others are a lot more difficult. But basically, what they were meant to be about was establishing a people who could demonstrate to the rest of the world, the pagan world living around them, what it looked like to live under God's rule. And Israel's king was meant to embody that. Israel's king was meant to embody that calling to the whole people of Israel and to reflect it in his wise and just rule. The king was meant to be God's vice-regent, ruling the people wisely and justly on God's behalf. And yet, when we read the story of the Bible, what we see is that the very people intended to be part of the solution were very swiftly revealed to be part of the problem instead, weren't they? 
Not long ago at this 6.30 service, we looked at some of the darkest episodes in the Old Testament. I picked out four of the most sort of awful stories in the Old Testament. We asked the question, what is it doing there in the Bible? And uh, the one that Nathan got given, Nathan over here, was that horrible passage that you may or may not remember, perhaps you've blanked it out, from the end of the book of Judges. And it really couldn't be more shocking or awful. I remember Ruth preaching on it years ago and calling it X-rated. But the thing is that that passage, which is about the people of Israel and about the way that they had degenerated, it very deliberately echoes the much earlier story in Genesis of Sodom and Gomorrah. And that echo of that passage about Israel in Judges to the passage uh, in Genesis about the pagan cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, that echo is deliberate. And it was intended to make the point that the people of Israel had slid into being as depraved as the very worst of the pagan culture that surrounded them. And Israel's kings were established in response to this chaos. And that's why last week we looked at the covenant with David. But those very kings who were again meant to be part of the solution, they failed in that task, didn't they? They failed to be faithful to God. And it started with the very king that was uh, after God's own heart, David himself. Now, you probably know the famous story of David committing adultery with Bathsheba. He didn't just do that, he then had her husband killed to cover it up. But what people sometimes miss is the significance in this story that Bathsheba's husband Uriah had because of his nationality. And so sometimes people can miss, however shocked they are by this dreadful story, they can miss the real point about its awfulness. You see, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, was a Hittite. He was a faithful, Gentile follower of David. He was just the sort of person who should have benefited from David's wise and just rule. Israel's king was meant to reflect God's wise and just rule, and Israel was meant to witness to the pagan nations what it looked like to be under God's wise and just rule, and Uriah, well, he became disposable, didn't he? David had him killed because he wanted to cover up his adultery with Bathsheba. And when David was condemned for what he'd done, this crucial line was spoken. By doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. David, meant to be part of God's covenant solution, had followed Israel in becoming part of the problem. And it got even worse in the kings that succeeded David. In fact, we're told not just that the kings of Israel sinned, but we're told that they led Israel into sin. The precise opposite of why they'd been established. And this is where we see the rise of the prophets and their role in the story of the covenant. The person who spoke those words of judgment upon David was Nathan, not Nathan Larkin, but Nathan the prophet. And it's with the development of Israel's monarchy, with the development of Israel's kings, that we also really see the rise of the prophets. Who were the prophets? Well, basically, the prophets were people that were raised up by God to speak on his behalf. To speak on his behalf to the people, and particularly to the kings, and to speak on God's behalf because they were somehow 
given a greater insight, a greater vision into how God saw the world. And a big part of the role of the prophets was speaking about the ways in which the people of Israel had broken the covenant and being clear about the consequences of this. And there were two very obvious ways interlinked that Israel had broken the covenant that the prophets particularly spoke about. Firstly, through her idolatry, and secondly, through her injustice. So to take idolatry first, the prophets were really fierce in condemning Israel's worship of idols. And we heard quite an example of that from the first reading that we had earlier from Jeremiah. Now when we see pictures of idols like this from the ancient world, it can all seem very, very foreign to us. It can seem as though that sort of sin was really very different from anything that we'd do today. And passages like that one we had read can seem really very far away from having any relevance to us. Until we remember what I said earlier, though, about the prophets being simply given more insight into how God saw the world. With all these prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so on, it was like God drawing back a veil for them to see simply more clearly than most people did the spiritual realities that were involved in how Israel was living. It was from this basis, from the vision that these prophets received, that they were then able to speak about how people who on the surface were very devout, people who on the surface were very religious, very pious towards God, how these people were in reality, if they could but see it, completely idolatrous. Because idolatry, as I've said before, is simply taking good things of creation, taking things that were intended to bless us, and because we have a desire to possess those things, placing them above God rather than below him. Elevating those things to a position of such prominence because we believe that we can then have maximum chance of gaining what they represent. Sadly, though, idolatry does the very opposite. Because life can only come from God, as that passage from Jeremiah we had earlier talked about God being the only creator, because God is the sole source of life, it means that elevate anything above God, place anything in a position where we expect to receive life from it, and actually all we receive is the opposite, namely death. And that's why the same prophets who condemned worship of idols, who condemned, for instance, the worship of the fertility gods of Canaan, those same prophets spoke about the land drying up and famine afflicting the people. The prophet Elijah, it's no coincidence that he condemned the fertility gods of uh, worshipping Baal and worshipping Asherah and spoke that God would cause a famine for three years. It was the same with those prophets who criticised Israel for her foreign policy, for running into the hands of or arms of foreign powers. Those same prophets spoke of those very nations then destroying them. Make created things whatever they are, into idols, the prophet said, and those things will only bring death rather than life. And it's the prophets, overwhelmingly, that we've got to read 
if we're going to take modern-day idolatry seriously. Because the truth is that idolatry is far from sort of going out of fashion. Idolatry actually is stronger today than ever. People saturated in possessions and the quest for more. And yet at the same time, tragically, we're also seeing more and more the consequences of this. Anxiety, envy, eating disorders, mental health issues, low self-esteem, dysfunctional relationships, and addiction. Pray that God will open our eyes just a bit to this reality and we start reading the prophets totally differently. Rather than feeling that we're reading something that's ancient and alien and really with a message for another time, if we pray that God will open our eyes to just a little bit of the vision that God gave the prophets and we'll start reading them completely differently. Because what we'll see is that everything that they have to say about idolatry and everything they have to say about its consequences is very obviously relevant to our situation. And it's organically linked to the other great thing that the prophets condemned, which is injustice. In fact, the prophets make it absolutely clear that idolatry and injustice always go together. They're like tea peas in a pod. They can't be separated. And that's because elevate created things above God, and it's impossible not to then oppress other people. And that's why for every single thing that people make into an idol today, food and drink, clothing, sport, sex, holidays, housing, fame, education, success, for every single one of those things that people make into an idol today, there are always other people paying the difference. There are other people paying the price tag for this. Idolatry simply can't happen without exploitation following it or being part of it. And exploitation is always based on idolatry. Now, rather negative stuff, Vicar, you might be thinking. And the prophets would have been seen in exactly the same way. The prophets would have been seen as completely over the top in making this shocking claim that there was something rotten about God's covenant people. But this is where it's important to remember what I said earlier about the prophets being enabled by God to see things more clearly than the folk around them. The reason why the prophets spoke with such authority, thus says the Lord, is because God had opened their eyes to the spiritual realities that the people around them were blind to. In fact, the people of Israel were probably rather like us in finding it incredibly hard to see the amount of idolatry and injustice that they had bought into. And during the remaining years of Israel's monarchy, prophets like Amos and Hosea, Isaiah and Jeremiah, they made it clear that the result would be the loss of Israel's covenant blessings. God had established his people in the promised land and he'd established his presence amongst them, but now the prophets announced that all of that would be taken away from them. And when in the 6th century BC the Jewish people were carted off to exile in Babylon, it seemed for all the world that God's covenant with his people had come to an end. That's why we get the Book of Lamentations 
in the Old Testament, bewailing what has happened. It seemed for all the world that the people's unfaithfulness, shown in their idolatry and injustice, had in the end overwhelmed God's faithfulness. In the end, the people's lack of faithfulness had, it seemed, overwhelmed God's covenant promises. Now, that's sadly what often happens in human relationships, doesn't it? When one person is committed to a relationship and the other person isn't, that relationship might stagger on for a while because of that one person's commitment, but in the end, it's normally overwhelmed by the lack of commitment from the other person, isn't it? But thankfully, the story of the covenant is different. The covenant isn't like that. Because once the ex exile has come, once that disaster has occurred, those same prophets who had exposed Israel's sin and revealed God's judgment, they also spoke about a coming day when God would bring about a dramatic change that would enable his covenant to be fulfilled. Now, there are too many different aspects of this to really cover in detail this evening. But all of the prophets spoke in different ways of God acting in a dramatic, fresh new way to renew the covenant. So many of them identified the agent of this with a special king from David's family, forming the link to what we looked at last week with Nathan. A king who would be better than all of the false shepherds, the false kings that had come before, and who eventually became known as the Messiah. At other times, the prophet spoke about a mysterious servant figure who through his suffering and death would somehow bring about Israel's rescue and the world's restoration. One of the most famous uh, prophecies is one that we heard earlier uh, in our second reading, where Jeremiah spoke about God establishing a new covenant with the people enabling them to obey his commands by writing his law upon their hearts. Ezekiel was similar to this when he spoke about God replacing the people's hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. And the prophet Joel spoke about God's spirit, which had been restricted in the Old Testament to really just coming upon leaders for a temporary amount of time. Joel spoke about God's spirit one day coming on all flesh so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the prophets, in other words, alongside their honesty about both the condition of God's people and the disasters that would happen because of this, also proclaimed that this wouldn't be God's final word. That in the future, God would bring about dramatically new things to fulfill his ancient covenant. And that's why it will be called a new covenant. Not really because it would replace the old covenant, but because God would in the future bring entirely new things that would enable that same covenant to be finally fulfilled. With the value of hindsight, we can see that these prophets were speaking far more than they kind of realised about Jesus Christ. That's why when we read the New Testament, the New Testament writers are determined to show how all of these different prophecies were fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Unto us a child is born. Bethlehem in the land of Judah, out of you shall come forth a ruler. Out of Egypt I called my son. These prophecies are familiar with Christians and valued very often by us. 
that perhaps a greater challenge is to hold these prophecies together with the more negative things that the prophet said beforehand. Isaiah, for instance, several chapters before he spoke about the people living in darkness seeing a great light, spoke in length about the darkness that had come down upon the people of Israel. Their inability to tell right from wrong. Their inability to see God or the idolatry and the injustice of which they were guilty. If we're going to enjoy and relish the purple patches, uh, or the purple pastures rather, within the prophets, we need to take more seriously the context around them. If we're really going to understand what the prophets said about God's future rescue and the nature of God's new covenant, we need to engage more with why they thought that new covenant was necessary. The prophets, you see, provide us with a vital insight. God's judgment and why God's judgment has come about is something that we can all too easily avoid. We can all too easily ignore. It's uncomfortable for us. We're used to being motivated about climate change. But do we interpret that in the right way? Do we look at the way in which our culture has insisted on living, both in terms of plundering uh, the planet's resources and in terms of making other people pay the price tag for that? Do we interpret that as simply unfortunate things that have happened that we ought to correct? Or do we actually interpret that as idolatry and oppression, the very things that the prophets talk about? And do we interpret the consequences of that, which we're really just waking up to? Do we interpret those consequences as part of God's judgment when people insist on living in a way that represents idolatry and injustice? With so many mental health problems uh, around today, uh, so much anxiety, um, so much um, detachment, uh, so many eating uh, disorders around. Do we interpret those things as just unfortunate and problems to be solved, or do we see them as spiritual problems? How would the prophets see them? Are they very real outcomes of a culture that has given itself completely to idolatry and injustice. They are all part of God's judgment, I believe. I want to make clear, not so much on the individuals who suffer as a result of them, because judgment uh, isn't that specific very often. But they're all consequences, often um, rebounding on the most vulnerable of the way in which our culture has insisted on living. And when we take the prophet seriously, we're summoned to repentance. Repentance from those ways of living that the prophets condemn. And it includes the acknowledgement that we as God's people are very frequently part of the problem. 
God calls people to be part of the solution, but very often we're simply part of the problem. But that very acknowledgement is what can then make us repentant. It's that very acknowledgement that we're part of the problem that can then produce enough repentance within us to really call upon God to do those things that he also promised through the prophets. To write his law upon our hearts. To replace our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. To be willing to accept that Jesus came to be that king and suffering servant all wrapped up together. The really crucial role of the prophets is shown by what happened just before Jesus began his public ministry. He was preceded by someone else, wasn't he? He was preceded by John the Baptist. John the Baptist coming really as the last of the great prophets to summon the people to repentance, to show that God's people were as in need of that repentance uh, as the pagan Gentiles, to summon God's people to repentance so that they will be prepared to receive everything that Jesus came to give them. So the prophets, God's messengers, given a vital insight into the spiritual realities that God's people were, and still very often are, completely unable to see. Vital messengers confronting us with the idolatry and the injustice that we very often participate in and yet remain blind to most of the time, and which reveal how much we're part of the problem. But if that was all the prophets delivered in terms of messages, it would be uh, pretty awful, wouldn't it? The prophets were also people who revealed the ultimate solution. The prophets, thank God, were people who revealed that God would fulfill his covenant faithfulness by bringing a whole series of fresh and new things, things fully and finally revealed in Jesus Christ, that would ensure that despite the failure of the people intended to be part of the solution, God's covenant faithfulness would still be fulfilled. <laughs>